Welcome back to the Churchill Podcast. Before we begin Episode 5, the Malacan Field Force Part 1, I want to warn you that Churchill doesn't feature directly in this episode. It is based on his book, The Story of the Malacan Field Force, and provides background on the events leading up to the creation of the force prior to Churchill's joining. In Part 2, Churchill rejoins the story after making his way back to India and joining the force as a correspondent at the invitation of Sir Bindon Blood. Let's begin in 1876 in Chitral. Chitral is a region of the northwest frontier of India bordering on Afghanistan. In 1876, Chitral was ruled by the Medar, or king, Amin al-Mulk. At the time, Amin al-Mulk was under threat from the Amir of Afghanistan, and as a result sought protection from the Maharaja of Kashmir. Kashmir and the Maharaja were a vassal of the British Empire, and it was to the British government in India that the Maharaja in turn sought approval for concluding a treaty with Amin al-Mulk and Chitral. The government in India was favorable, and in the Kashmir-Chitral Treaty of 1878, it was concluded that the Medar of Chitral would receive an annual subsidy of 12,000 rupees, and in return he submitted to the Maharaja and agreed to obey his orders. British influence and political interest thus extended to Chitral, and the government placed a garrison in Gilgit on the border between Kashmir and Chitral. With this treaty in hand, Ahmed al-Mulk expanded and consolidated his power in the region. However, in 1892 he died and left many sons who eyed the throne vacated by their father. One of these sons, Afzal al-Mulk, happened to be in Chitral when his father died and declared himself the Medar over his older brother Nizam, and he killed many of his other brothers while the ones beyond his reach fled to the nearby regions and sought the protection of various princes. Afterwards, Afzal sought the recognition of the government in India and duly received it as he was viewed as, quote, a man of courage and determination. His rule didn't last long because a couple of months later, Amin al-Mulk's brother and Afzal's uncle, Sher Afzul, went to Chitral, killed his nephew, the new Medar, and tried to claim the throne. The British government refused to recognize his rule, though, and instead supported Amin al-Mulk's eldest son, Nizam. Nizam advanced on Chitral with 250 men and gathered support along the way. Sheriff Zul heard about this and sent 1,200 men to oppose his nephew, but at the last second they abandoned the pretender to the throne and joined Nizam. Sheriff Zul thereupon left Chitral and took refuge in Afghanistan where he bided his time. Nizam became the new Medar, and during his rule the British added an additional battalion to the Gilgit garrison, and various military posts were established between Gilgit and the town of Matsuj in Chitral. While Nizam was settling into his new position, his brother Amir was conspiring with Umar Khan, the Khan of Jandul, and one of the most powerful men in the region who had been harboring the 20-year-old Amir since his father's death. When the time was right, Amir went back to Chitral and pleaded to his brother Nizam for protection from Umar Khan, who he claimed he had just escaped from. Nizam welcomed his brother, and Amir returned the favor by murdering him. He immediately asked the British military officers in Chitral to recognize him as the new Medar, but these men correctly referred the question to the government in India. At the same time, Umar Khan gathered a large force and advanced on Chitral. Amir didn't trust Umar Khan, and he gathered a large force himself. The two sides clashed, and Amir and his army were decisively defeated. The uncle, Sheriff Zul, who had taken refuge in Afghanistan after his army defected to Nizam, heard about the defeat of Amir and now claimed the throne of Chitral. Umar Khan agreed to support Sheriff Zul's claim in return for various favors. The two men became allies and they rattled their swords at the British and promised to fight the imperial forces if Sheriff Zul's claim was denied. The government in India didn't take kindly to the threat and ordered Sheriff Zul to immediately leave Chitral or risk being removed by force. Afzul refused to leave, attacked the British government in Chitral, 
and he took two British officers as prisoners. The surviving British forces barricaded themselves inside of the fort, and they were immediately besieged by the enemy. The government in India immediately responded. To rescue the besieged, a force of 16,000 men was gathered in Peshawar, under the command of Sir Robert Lowe with Sir Bindon Blood as chief of staff. A second but smaller force was gathered at Gilgit, which also advanced towards Chitral. The force under Sir Robert Lowe was advancing through territory which hitherto had been relatively free from British influence and rule, and the reaction of the tribesmen in this territory through which they had to march was unknown. The government in India sought to soothe the tribesmen by distributing a proclamation which read that they had, quote, no intention of permanently occupying any territory through which Umar Khan's misconduct may force them to pass, or of interfering with the independence of the tribes, end quote. But the tribesmen either didn't understand the proclamation or they didn't trust the British, and in response to the invasion force under Sir Robert Lowe, they gathered 12,000 of their own men and positioned themselves on the Malakand Pass to block the British march to Chitral. On April 2nd, the night before the attack, Sir Bindon Blood as Chief of Staff made a quiet reconnaissance of the enemy positions and found the best means of attack which began the next day. The British opened fire on the morning of April 3rd with artillery and Maxim guns, while the guide troops and Gordon Highlanders went on flanking missions on the left and right sides of the pass and successively taking enemy positions. After a while, the main force proceeded down the center and began scaling the rugged, rocky terrain to attack the enemy. At the end of the battle, the British had 70 killed and wounded compared to 500 killed and an equal number of wounded among the tribesmen. The tribesmen were forced from the pass and they fled to their homes in the hills. While all this was going on, General Kelly and his force from Gilgit was approaching Chitral and the besiegers. When Sheriff Zul heard about the imminent arrival of a relief force, he and his men, including Umar Khan, abandoned the siege. Sheriff Zul was quickly captured and made a prisoner by the British. Umar Khan got further and escaped to Afghanistan, but there he was captured by Amir of Afghanistan and also made a prisoner. The British troops and officers in the fort were relieved, and Chitral was secured. But now that it was secure, a great policy question needed to be answered. Should British influence and control over Chitral be maintained? Or given its remoteness on the frontier, should it be abandoned and left to rule by the local tribes? One argument for maintaining control was that it was a forward base from which to keep an eye on the Russians, who bordered Afghanistan and weren't far off. But if control was kept, Chitral would surely need a strong garrison in order to maintain order. And if a garrison was based there, then a road would be required from Peshawar to Chitral in order to supply and reinforce the garrison from time to time. This road would include the Malakand Pass and the suspension bridge over the Swat River that was built during the advance of Sir Robert Lowe and his force of 12,000 men. On the other hand, if Chitral was abandoned, it would mean the abandonment of the long-established forward policy, which held that Britain should continue to expand its empire and influence. The Liberal Prime Minister at this time was Lord Rosebery, and he unequivocally declared that a garrison should not be established in Chitral, no roads should be made, and that British agents and administrators should not be maintained there. In short, the Rosebery administration was abandoning the region and the long-held forward policy. If that had happened, though, if that order had been carried out, there never would have been a Malkan field force, and Churchill might still be in London enjoying his leave. Fate intervened, though. A month after this declaration was made, the general election of 1895 was held in Britain, and the Liberal Party lost out to the Conservatives. Lord Rosebery was booted from the Premiership and replaced by Lord Salisbury, whose administration quickly reversed the decision of the Rosebery administration. A garrison was established in Chitral, 
another was placed at the Malakan Pass, and yet another was stationed to watch the bridge over the Swat River at Shakdara. A road was built, and a new meter, Suja Olmok, the 12-year-old son of Amun Olmok, was placed on the throne. For the next two years, life in Chitral was peaceful. Various tribes received subsidies from the government in India to maintain and protect the road. And with the road, commerce and wealth flourished as travel and communication between regions became faster and easier. But beneath this veil of tranquility and abundance, forces hostile to British rule were preparing, gathering, and waiting for the opportune time to strike. These forces were organized and led by Sartre Fakir, or as he was known in the British press and by Churchill, the Mad Fakir. In mid-July 1897, Major Dean, the British political agent in Chitral, sensed that something was stirring among the tribes, and he immediately notified the government in India. The various posts in the frontier were notified and told to prepare, but no one believed that an uprising or attack was imminent or even real. Life was good. Relations with the tribes were cordial, and the standard of living among everyone was improving. It seemed incomprehensible to the occupying British that the tribes were unhappy, and so unhappy that they would revolt against their rule. According to Churchill, the Mad Fakir had convinced his adherents, and soon-to-be adherents, that he possessed unearthly powers like invisibility at night. He told his followers he would face the infidels alone, because an army was going to descend from heaven to join him for their annihilation. But if they did join him, they would be invincible to British bullets and artillery, a reward from God if only they were true believers. On the afternoon of July 26th, it was reported to Major Dean that a large number of armed Pathans were gathering and that the local tribes had no intention of resisting their march. Reinforcements were immediately called for and the various commanders were instructed to be prepared to advance at once. Later in the evening, Sartre Fakir and his forces began to advance down the valley towards the Malakand camp. Around the same time, a telegram was received from Shakdara near the bridge over the Swat River, which said a group of armed men were advancing towards the camp. But immediately after this telegram was sent, the wire was cut and all communication with Shakdara was lost. That same night, while the officers and soldiers were finishing their dinner and preparing to meet the foe, the unmistakable sound of musketry reverberated throughout the hills. The Malakand was under attack. A small force was quickly gathered and they advanced to one of the roads where the enemy was thought to be advancing. They reached the road and peered around a sharp turn and found nearly a thousand tribesmen coming towards them, armed primarily with swords and knives. The British fired into this oncoming mass while they fell back to a cutting which offered some protection. The tribesmen fell by the dozen, but the British were not without losses, and the small force was nearly outflanked and annihilated before reinforcements arrived. The road was held and the enemy kept at bay, but the same cannot be said for the other entrances into the camp. The tribesmen made their way into the valley and killed and plundered their way through the bazaar and the huts and stores of the commissariat. And despite a valiant and heroic attempt to prevent it, the tribesmen captured one of the reserve ammunition depots and stripped it of its contents. The Mad Fakir and his men pressed the attack, and the British commanders in the camp were compelled to call for reinforcements of about a hundred men from the fort. But as the Mad Fakir's ally Darkness began to slowly abandon his army, the tribesmen retreated back into the hills carrying their dead and wounded with them. The threat wasn't over though, and orders were given that afternoon for the north camp to be abandoned, and for all the troops to be concentrated at the south camp. That night, the news of the attack finally made it across the ocean to England, and it was then that Churchill found out about the events while watching the races at Goodwood. Before the news reached Churchill, though, it reached the government in India, which immediately ordered reinforcements to the scene of the action. Meanwhile, the garrison in the North Camp evacuated, and the British forces were concentrated in the South Camp. The North Camp was no sooner abandoned than it was set ablaze by the tribesmen. 
The conflagration could be seen for miles, and it was a silent rallying call to all the other tribesmen in the region, who swiftly descended upon the Malakand and reinforced the army of the Mad Fakir. During the next two nights, the tribes again attacked the south camp, but they again were driven off with large losses to themselves. During the day when the British weren't fighting, they were improving and strengthening their defenses and shaping the battlefield to their advantage. They cleared the trees in front of the enclosure from which they fought. They leveled a mud-walled enclosure that was previously used by the enemy as a defensive position, and they created bonfires along the approach to the camp, which they could light to illuminate the enemy and deprive them of their key advantage, darkness. These improvements proved extremely effective because the tribesmen attacked again the next night, and a heavy fire was poured into the masses of men that tried to reach the enclosure. Some did reach the walls of the enclosure, and a few even made their way in, but they were killed at close quarters with the bayonet. Around 2.30 in the morning, the Mad Fakir himself was wounded, and at that point the attack began to slacken and eventually died out. In this attack alone, over 300 tribesmen were killed. A final attack was made the following night, but it was again repelled, and it became clear to the tribesmen that the Malakand was impregnable. While all this was happening, the fort at Shakdara, which contained a force of about 200 men within its walls, was simultaneously vigorously attacked by the tribesmen. As soon as the attack began on July 26th, Lieutenant Ratray, the commander of the fort, telegraphed the news to the garrison at the Malakand, but the enemy immediately cut the wire after this one message got through, and the fate of Shakdara remained a mystery for some time. However, despite the fierce fighting going on in the Malakand, it was decided that a force should be sent to reinforce the small garrison at Shakdara. With this decided, Captain Wright, along with 40 Sowers of the 11th Bengal Lancers and a handful of other British officers, set off on the morning of the 27th towards Shakdara. The enemy occupied the hills at almost every point, though, and the British were subjected to a near-constant fire as the Lancers and their horses made their way over broken and rocky ground. The squadron intended to make their way through the Amandara Pass and into the plain on the other side, but they found it heavily occupied by the enemy. They considered making a rush through it at a full gallop, but they would have lost many men in the process. At length, they decided to outflank the position by taking a different but unknown path. By a circuitous and very rocky route, they found themselves on the banks of a branch of the Swat River. The water was swift and the depth unknown, but the Lancers had no choice but to rush in without hesitation because the tribesmen had followed them and kept up a heavy fire. Several horses and Lancers were nearly swept away by the fierce current of the river, but in the end, all made it across without incident. Once on the other side, the Lancers dismounted and fired back at the tribesmen. A couple Sowers were struck and wounded, but these were gathered up when the squadron mounted again. The tribesmen kept on their heels, but they were finally forced to fall back when the squadron reached the outskirts of Shakdara, and the Maxim gun guarding the bridge over the river poured shot after shot into the enemy. The reinforcements arrived on the 27th. The day before, the tribesmen charged twice at the fort, but in both instances retreated after many of them were shot down by the garrison. They tried again on the morning of the 27th, before the reinforcements arrived, but this attempt was also quickly repulsed. At 11.30 a.m. on the 27th, they tried yet again. In this attack, many of the tribesmen charged in carrying only standards and banners, evidently thinking themselves invincible, only to fall as so many of their comrades had fallen the day before. These scenes repeated themselves for several days. The fire upon the garrison was ceaseless, and the men were exhausted from fighting and improving the defenses of the fort. And all the while, the numbers of the enemy continued to grow. On the 26th, the enemy force was estimated at 1,200 men, but by August 2nd, it was believed to have multiplied 10 times over 12,000 men. 
If this wasn't bad enough, the tribesmen soon captured the civil hospital, a detached building from which they could fire at the fort with cover. They occupied the ridges from which they could fire into the fort, and they took the ridge leading to the signal tower, which cut off badly needed supplies, food and water primarily, to the men inside. At this point, Lieutenant Ratray judged the situation to be extremely desperate. He decided to send a message seeking additional assistance from the signal tower. Given the position of the enemy, though, this was an extremely dangerous task, so on August 1st, they sent the shortest message possible. Help us. Little did they know help was already on the way. A few days earlier, on July 28th, the government in India responded to the events unfolding at Shakdara and the Malakand by informing Sir Bindan Blood that he would lead the Malakand field force, whose objective was to put down the uprising. Blood was in Agra, near New Delhi at the time, and immediately made his way to the northwest frontier to take up his post. In the small hours of August 1st, he received a telegram informing him of the precarious position of the Shakdara garrison. That is, the ever-increasing numbers of the enemy, the newly captured positions, the depletion of ammunition, food, and water. Blood was a veteran of the relief of Chitral, though, and he knew Shakdara and Malakand better than anyone. He replied that, quote, knowing the ground, he, quote, felt serenely confident. While Blood was still hurrying to the Malakand, Brigadier General Mikul John was already busy organizing the relief of Shakdara. He put together a force comprised of the 45th Sikhs, the 24th Punjab Infantry, the No. 5 Company Sappers and Miners, and four guns of the No. 8 Mountain Battery. An hour before Blood arrived at the Malakand at noon on August 1st, this force, led by Lieutenant Colonel Adams, made its way towards the Amandara Pass with the object of seizing it in order to clear the way for the larger relieving force being assembled. The enemy watched from the hills and quickly understood what they were doing, and they concentrated their forces. They relentlessly attacked the column and forced it to retire to the camp where they found Sir Bindon Blood in conference with Brigadier General Mikuljan. Mikuljan was placed in command of the relief force which was now comprised of nearly 1,000 rifles, two squadrons of the 11th Bengal Lancers, two squadrons of the Guides Cavalry, four guns of the No. 8 Mountain Battery, 50 sappers, and hospital details. The next morning this force set off along the graded road to Shakdara which was smooth and prepared and nothing like the rough rocky ground from the day before. The problem was that the enemy was blocking this very obvious and easy path. The problem was solved by Sir Bindon Blood, the man who knew every inch of this ground. As the main force advanced, Blood gathered a group of 300 men under the command of Colonel Goldney to turn the flank of the tribesmen blocking the way. He pointed to a spur overlooking the position of the enemy and which hitherto had not been noticed by the officers of the Malakand garrison. Blood directed his men to take the spur and attack the natives in flank. They stealthily gained their objective and surprised the tribesmen who ran at the sight of them. The doorway to Shakdara was open, and the main body of troops and lancers quickened their advance. The tribesmen tried to reorganize and concentrate in front of the advancing column, but the troops charged with bayonets and the thousands of tribesmen scattered back into the hills and across the plain. The 11th Bengal lancers pursued the fleeing tribesmen, while the guys seized the Amandara Pass and pushed on to relieve the fort and garrison at Shakdara. The timing could not have been better. While Sir Bindon Blood was forcing his way through to the plain, the enemy forces at Shakdara launched their largest attack yet. But as the attack reached its highest pitch, the guides were seen galloping down from the Amandara Pass and approaching the bridge spanning the river. The enemy again fled at the sight of the charging cavalry, but they were pursued and cut down wherever they were found. Now, with help at hand, Lieutenant Ratray gathered a small force of six men and attacked the civil hospital, which was still held by 30 men of the enemy. 
The enemy were bayoneted and the hospital was regained. Lieutenant Ratray had one last fight, though, that day. On his return from the hospital, he saw the 11th Bengal Lancers engaged with a contingent of the enemy who were firing from behind a sungar, or low stone wall. Ratray and his men attacked the sungar in flank and killed many of the enemy while the rest fled. According to Churchill, though, the last tribesman in the sungar shot Lieutenant Ratray in the neck, but this hero of Shakdar was unfazed, and he advanced towards his assailant and cut him down. Thus ended the fighting. At the end of the siege, seven of the garrison were killed while 13 were wounded, 20 casualties in all, while by the best official estimates the enemy had over 2,000 men killed. After the relief of Shakdar, the British were masters of the lower Swat. Many of the tribes in the immediate area surrendered unconditionally after witnessing the overwhelming force and firepower of the British, and they returned home to their villages. Those from the upper Swat, though, believing they were well protected from attack by a natural obstacle called the Gate of Swat, sought terms with the British, who were in no mood to negotiate. In response to what was perceived as insolent behavior, Sir Bindon Blood decided to send a force of about 3,500 men to outflank and capture the Gate of Swat, or the Landakai position as Churchill referred to it, which was well occupied by 5,000 of the enemy. In planning the attack, Sir Bindon Blood himself surveyed the position of the enemy in the surrounding area. In doing so, he found that the so-called Gate of Swat was a long spur jutting out from the mountains into the valley, and which blocked the way into the wet and swampy valley beyond, except for a small causeway which hugged the bottom of the spur and led into the valley. Going round the bottom of the spur and the causeway was a natural obstacle, the Swat River. 5,000 men of the enemy occupied this spur behind stone wall defenses, and they were determined to prevent the advance of the British. Blood's tactics were simple and elegant, but they were effective. The Royal West Kent began the operation by feinting a frontal attack on the spur, in order to distract the tribesmen from the other maneuvers. Meanwhile, the infantry marched into the hills and by a circuitous route positioned themselves at the point where the spur jutted out from the mountain. Next, the field artillery opened fire and shells began bursting among the tribesmen who had never experienced artillery fire before. Soon after, the mountain batteries which the infantry took with them into the hills opened fire from the spur and the tribesmen quickly found themselves in a precarious position. They were being hit with explosive artillery from the front and from the left. To the right was the river. Their only path of retreat was the marshy valley behind them, and they began fleeing into this quagmire by the hundreds. At this point, the Royal West Kent advanced and captured the spur, while the engineers quickly repaired the causeway which had been damaged in several points by the tribesmen. Finally, the cavalry, which had been held in readiness until now, was let loose and they dashed across the causeway into the valley to cut down as many tribesmen as they could reach. Many made it safely into the hills beyond, but nonetheless it was a British victory, and the experience of artillery fire made a significant impression on the enemy. The next morning, Sir Bindon Blood ordered the force to continue marching up the valley, where one after another the tribes surrendered to the British. After this successful operation, Blood wanted to attack the Bunar Walls, who in the past had repeatedly risen up against British rule, and for this he appealed to the government in India for permission. The government viewed the operation with trepidation and denied his request. As a result, the newly formed Malakan Field Force stood down and awaited orders for the next two weeks. Thanks for listening. The next episode, Episode 6, is the story of the Malakan Field Force Part 2.